Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information services provider for emerging markets executives. We partner with business leaders at over 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools, and data that help power their emerging market business strategies. The focus of today's podcast is part two of a four-part series on effective customer segmentation strategies in emerging markets. Our topic will be a deeper dive on segmentation strategy number one, market segmentation. My name is Richard Leggett, and I'm the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group, and I'm joined in studio today by Dan Cornfield, FSG's Head of Management Excellence Research. As a reminder, this research and all of our content is available via our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com or via your FSG iPad application. Dan, welcome. Thanks, Rich. Just to frame the discussion for our listeners, FSG has recently released an in-depth four-part emerging market customer segmentation research series. And today our discussion will focus on part two, which is a deep dive on the first effective segmentation strategy, market segmentation. Our part one discussion was an executive summary. We focused on kind of a general overview of the work. And in subsequent discussions, we'll take deep dives into the other two highly effective segmentation strategies, which are behavioral segmentation and profitability segmentation. So with that as a backdrop, and hopefully not too confusing of a one, (laughs) why don't we get started? So Dan, let's just begin with a very simple definition. How do you define market segmentation and why do you think our clients should deploy it? I.e., what's the primary objective of a market segmentation strategy? Market segmentation within the customer segmentation universe is basically taking a large market, which could be, for example, China or Brazil or India, and saying, how am I going to divide that up into segments so that I can apply strategy differently to each of those segments, treat them essentially differently? And you want to do that both to better satisfy your customers in each segment, because different segments want different things, but also to better meet your own financial objectives, because some segments will be more profitable or higher growth than others. And also from an effectiveness standpoint of your marketing and sales team, different strategies will really sing with different segments. So the overall purpose of market segmentation, of dividing up your market into segments, is to really make sure that you have as a portfolio across those segments a way to hit your objectives and be sustainable in your revenue growth over time. Is it safe to say that this is the foundational customer segmentation approach? Absolutely. So when people think of customer segmentation, the first kind of segmentation that we've discussed, market segmentation, and that's the focus of this podcast, is really classically what people are thinking about. Okay. And just one last question, just to clarify, market segmentation doesn't need to be just geographic. It can be based on a product line or uh, potentially types of buyers. Absolutely. So we see some companies divided up by their sales channels uh, or by the size of the buyer, whether it's a large, medium, or small enterprise, or whether it's a government or private public depending in the healthcare space. So there are lots of different criteria by which you can segment your markets. Okay. And I thought it was interesting in your research, you discussed standard approaches and then innovative approaches to market segmentation. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised that the innovative approaches outperformed, but I was actually stunned by how much can you maybe talk about the differences and then put some numbers around the, the difference between innovative and then standard? Absolutely, Rich. So the standard approach, there's, there's nothing wrong with the standard approaches. Organizations have their own internal logic, and that can lead them to segment by channel. It can lead them to segment by geography and sub-geography and combinations of these things. We didn't see highly relevant patterns of 
outperformance based on those decisions. And so I guess what we would recommend to companies there is don't overthink this. If you've got a natural way of segmenting your markets, go with it. However, there are some things that really do matter. And two that I would really like to call out, one is how often do you take a refreshed look at your segmentation? And the companies that did took an annual look at are we drawing our segments in the right way based on the market dynamics over the past year? Do we need to adjust the way in which we draw these segment lines? They, they really outperformed in a, in a couple of key metrics. So they had 78% higher sales conversion rates and 109% more likely to be satisfied with their team's opening up of new market space. So whether it's being really successful in the markets they're currently operating in or opening up new space for their teams to explore, the companies that review their segments annually uh, are doing much, much better in this regard. Okay. And there was a second one? The second one is really taking into account a competitive perspective when you segment your markets and do that, that segmentation refresh. And so what we see is that what's typical for companies is they have two very separate exercises that are done in different rooms at different times, potentially with different groups of people. One is, let's look at our competitive intelligence and the competitive landscape. The other is, let's look at our market segments and how we draw those segments. And the best companies have that as one conversation or they join those conversations together. Because at the end of the day, if you take a segment, let's call it segment A, and you haven't considered how your competitors are playing in that segment, then you may be completely missing that that segment should actually be divided into A1 and A2. A1, where you're basically free to play and your competitors are not paying attention, and A2, where your competitors are poised to eat your lunch. And that's a vital distinction to be made. And here you you saw also compelling results. Absolutely. So the companies that used competitive behavior as one of their segmentation criteria were over 100%, so 123% more likely to have their uh, year-over-year revenue growth last year be higher than the 20% mark. Very interesting. So tied to this, you provide a really interesting framework for how clients can incorporate competitive intelligence into their market segmentation approach. It's a visual framework, so tough to do over a podcast, but I thought maybe you could try to walk our listeners through the framework. Sure, absolutely. And and when you're checking out our actual written report, this is called the competitive dynamic matrix. And basically what it is, is is a simple two by two. And like most two by twos, it's grounded in two questions. And you want to ask these questions for each of your segments. So segment by segment, you would go through this exercise. The first question is, how crowded is this market? from a competitive standpoint. Uh, is it very crowded? There are a lot of players jostling you know, and elbowing each other, or is it a fairly open field? The second question is how fast moving is this market? And what we mean by that is how quickly is the basis upon which your competitors compete changing? So in a very fast-moving competitive market, you see rapidly changing marketing strategies. Uh, you might see technological developments. So for example, the, the mobile phone market is notoriously fast-moving. Um, in a slow-moving market, you don't see those developments as quickly. And based on the answers to these questions, in the particular segment, is my market crowded or not? And is it fast-moving or not? This really helps you to think through what is the competitive dynamic in this segment and what does that mean for my strategy? So for each of the intersections between the yeses or nos to these questions, there's a different strategy that's going to make the most sense for your organization. In your research, you highlight two highly relevant case studies that address challenges that I know I hear often in emerging markets, and I imagine you must as well if you chose these. One uh, where a client is trying to open new market segments, and then the other where the client is trying to succeed in new emerging markets, but their product doesn't seem to be a good fit. And so I thought these are both really relevant, so I want to take a little bit of time to walk through each of them. So let's start with the the first one. So a, a client trying to open a new market segment 
Walk us through the case facts as a starting point. You know, what challenge, uh, a little more detail on the challenge, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of our clients that is a a logistics solutions provider, and they specialize in crates and pallets. And we were speaking with them particularly about their Latin American operations. And they have really cornered a market, which is pallets and crates for, for large retailers. So, you know, whether it's it's Walmart or the, the local equivalents, if you want to get your products reliably, interchangeably, quickly moved from one place to another, then you go to this company. What this company was struggling with is saying, where is our next pocket of growth going to come from? And that's where they really wanted to say, okay, let's consider other industries we could sell to. It could be uh, the oil and gas industry, mining. Um, it could be any number of, of different industries. But here's the problem to really develop a good sort of sub-market entry strategy into these industries, we assume we would really have to know these industries well. And we don't have industry expertise in these industries. Uh, We don't know very much about the chemicals industry, for example. And we have limited bandwidth on our teams. I, I would love to build a, a you know, 10-person market research team that just learns about the chemicals industry as the spearhead point of our entry into that space. But I just don't have the bandwidth to do that. And so what they did was, was fairly innovative, which is they said, you know what, we don't have to learn everything about each of these industries to really know how to sell to them effectively. And I'll explain in more detail what they did as an alternative in a second. But let me just pause and see if, if what I've been saying makes sense. No, it does. I think it's, it's intriguing. So I, I am curious about the, the solution itself and some of the, the, these best practices you observed. Because I think that backdrop you've described uh, is, is like that with many of our clients, especially uh, when they're out in the regions and they don't have uh, large teams. And so they've, they've got to operate with you know, less resource. Yeah, absolutely. It can be intimidating to enter a new market space, and especially if you're considering five new market spaces and saying which one is the right one. Nobody wants to do that in a poor quality manner, but nobody has the bandwidth to really learn everything they would want to learn, right? So what this company did is they said, let's focus on the intersection between each industry's business model and what makes a competitive difference for them and our product and service. So in their case, If you look at the business model of of any industry, it might include sales channels, branding, talent management, financing. There's a variety of different ways in which companies compete. But if you're intersecting with this logistics company, the intersection is really at supply chain, right? What matters in terms of supply chain for the competitive dynamic of each of these industries? And by focusing on that intersection, they were then able to say, how can we position our product for that industry? Or can we position it in a way that matters to their competitive outcomes? Okay. And so how did, how did all this, and there's more detail in the report, but how did it all turn out for them in terms of results? Did, did this approach work? Yeah, it turned out really well. So they were able to identify a few industries, uh, for example, in the chemicals industry. The thing that really matters in the chemicals supply chain is, is safety. You don't want to have chemical leaks or spills. So then they were able to say, okay, what is it about our, our pallets and our logistical solutions that we can really orient towards a safety kind of pitch? And is that an area we want to go into? In uh, another example, in the mining industry, what mining companies really need is the reliability and durability of their products. And they also need to make sure there's no adverse environmental impact of using them because there's so much scrutiny on the local environmental impact of a mining operation. So again, uh, this company was able to say, okay, what would it be about our product that we can line up and really prove? And do we need to do uh, R&D and, and innovate on our product to be able to enter this space? Or are we actually set to go and we just need to change our pitch and modify slightly? Okay. Let's turn to the second case, just in the interest of time. And this is the one that's focused on product fit. I'm operating and trying to succeed in emerging markets, but my product doesn't seem to be a good fit. Case facts first, and and then how the company solved the challenge. 
So this this is a company that in the report itself we call Bosporus Manufacturing Company. That's a pseudonym because the company was very happy to share its story but preferred not to be named by name. Um, but this is essentially a tools manufacturing company. And what they did is they were based in, out of the United States. They had a fantastic operation in the United States. And they had a fairly sophisticated way of segmenting the customers and building different product lines for those different segments. However, when they tried to expand internationally and they made a big push and invested a lot of money to enter Latin America and Asia, it was a big flop. And what they found is that, for the most part, people were not buying their products, uh, at least not at the volume that justified their presence. And so the beginning of this story is, is actually a, a very difficult situation where they had pulled out of Asia, they had backtracked, and the gentleman that I was speaking with who, who told me this story was actually sent to Latin America to do the exact same thing, to, to end their operations there, because they basically said, our products don't work in these markets. And so how did they solve it? Sounds like it's going to have a happier ending. So, <laughs> it, it did. In fact, the whole story reversed and, and was turned on its head. So they saved Latin America and then re-expanded in Asia. And now their, their uh, emerging markets portfolio is, is part of the growth engine of the organization. And the way in which they did this was... You know, not surprisingly, through a particular brand of customer segmentation, right? What they did is they said, okay, what are the bright spots in our product portfolio? So maybe we're selling uh, 175 products. Are there eight of them that are really selling like hotcakes? Uh, and if so, why is that? What can we learn from that? It's not just that the products are better built or cheaper or higher quality. It's something about the intersection between how these uh in this case, construction workers like to use our products and the nature of the, the local environment in which they need to use our products. So they started with this bright spots of saying, in Latin America, rather than close down altogether, let's stop trying to sell our 125 losers, focus on the eight that are winners, ramp up our production and our selling of those, but then say, what do we learn from this? How, how do we resegment the marketplace based on the characteristics that made these tools winners in this market? So the net results were that they were, were successful. Yep. So not only were they successful, but they built a really innovative hybrid portfolio of saying, okay, we're going to source some of our, our SKUs from the, the international portfolio that we have built out of the United States because those work everywhere. But on the other hand, they started saying, how can we build some products that really fit the local needs? Um, so in the construction environment, for example, the U.S. construction world is based on mortar, plaster, and, and, and wood construction for the most part. In a lot of emerging markets, it's concrete and brick and cement, and th those require a different portfolio of tools. And so they built a hybrid portfolio understanding what works and what doesn't across those markets, um, including the acquisition of some local tools manufacturers that were really uh, doing well in particular market environments. Great. Dan, I'm just watching the time. I think there's a lot of content in this report, and I really encourage our listeners to uh, to dive into it, especially these case studies, because I think they're fascinating. I want to thank you for sharing these insights, and we look forward to diving deeper into the other segmentation strategies, uh, which are behavioral segmentation and profitability segmentation in subsequent podcast discussions. As a reminder, you can speak to Dan or any member of the FSG research team at any time by reaching out directly or via your FSG client relationship director. You can also access this customer segmentation research and all of FSG's management excellence research on our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. This concludes our podcast. We wish you great outperformance across your emerging markets portfolio.